Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern-day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week with More Than Amuse. My name is Sadie. And I'm Stani, and thanks for coming back. Um, no, you all probably noticed we had a little break last week. Yes. Um, even though our book episode came out, so if you haven't had a chance to check that out, please do. But we're back now, regularly scheduled episodes. Why is it so hard to say regularly scheduled? <laughs> However, there is one thing that has been bothering me this week that has nothing to do with our podcast, really. But I wanted to talk about it because it kind of has to do with, I don't know, it's definitely feminist. So, okay. have you been watching the Olympics? Truthfully, uh, not a ton. But I've been following along on social media, and whenever I go upstairs to hang out with my mom, she's watching, and I also watch with her. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so I was watching with my family on, I don't remember, Friday or Sunday or Saturday or something like that. I don't remember. Cool. And we happened to cross the beach volleyball team. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, so first off, very highly underrated sport. They deserve so much more praise because the sand was like over 100 degrees. And so even though they kept spraying it with water, they were like burning their feet off. (laughs) My gosh. Yeah. Okay. And it was like over 100 degrees in the air. And they're in this like little fake beach in the middle of Tokyo. So like the sun is like beating down on them. And then you don't have the benefit of like water nearby to like kind of bring in that like breeze the casual or... ocean yes yeah. and you're playing in this like olympic tournament so then on top of that there was this huge controversy that happened this year because the norwegian girls or women's sorry they're women the norwegian women's beach volleyball team got fined for wearing shorts instead of bikini bottoms did yeah, you hear I... about this mm-hmm, i did hear about that one Yes. So, and then, of course, like, Pink, the artist, offered to pay the fine, and then they ended up not having to pay it, and they donated the money that they would have gotten to pay the fine to, like, a nonprofit that helps promote women in sports. So, like, all very good, and that's great that that happened. I didn't know that. Yeah, but then I was like, okay, but why do they have to wear bikini bottoms anyway? Because here's the thing. The men's beach volleyball team wears, like, knee-length shorts and a t-shirt. Oh, really? Yes. Like, their beach volleyball team, like, they're not even, like, playing shirtless in swim trunks. Like, they're wearing short sleeve shirts and shorts all the way down to their knees. Like, But for the women, they have to wear the bikinis. But the women are wearing bikinis. They're wearing their bikini bottoms and then, like, luckily, like, a sports bra. So, like, uh, hopefully that doesn't fall off. But they looked so uncomfortable. They're falling into this burning sand. And then they kept having to adjust their bottoms. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Because first off, like, that uniform isn't essential in order to play beach beach volleyball. It's not like it makes it better for you in any way. You know what I mean? So I was like, yeah, It's not like they get, like, a competitive advantage by wearing shorts rather than bikini bottoms. And the indoor women's volleyball team wears, like, bike shorts and sports bras. So it, like, doesn't make sense because it's, like, it's the same sport. It's like they're just making them wear bikini bottoms because it's beach volleyball, and so they have to be in the beach. (laughs) I don't know. Exactly. So then I was like, what the heck? And my dad was like, oh, I'm actually curious. So he Googled it and found out that when the tennis team switched from, like, their skirts to shorts, Mm -hmm. uh, their viewership dropped by, like, a lot. And so that's one of the main reasons why they won't let the beach volleyball stop wearing what they're wearing, probably, is because of funding. So it means that the only reason that these women are being forced to play beach volleyball in scalding temperatures in these, like, uh, tiny bikini bottoms is because of pervy men that are watching it because they're wearing that. Hi. Okay. Oh, wow. That is, that's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. And I was like, that's 
ridiculous, especially when they get fined for wearing shorts when that's, that's more practical. That's thing to me when it's like, I get it if it's like each country, each team can like make that decision. You know, mm-hmm. like maybe some teams want to wear the bikini bottoms. Who cares? You know, let that team make that decision. But to be fined for wearing yeah. shorts, it's like, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> like, I Why? know it doesn't reason? make any sense. And I was like, this is dumb on so many levels because like every other sport doesn't have to wear anything like that. Do you know what I mean? Like the gymnasts yeah. are wearing like long sleeve one piece leotards. The swimmers are wearing like one piece swimsuits. The divers are wearing like no one else is being yeah, forced the- to wear a bikini except for the beach volleyball team. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. That's like the weirdest thing to me is like the forcing to wear it. Cause uh-huh. it's like, it's fine if like a certain team decides they want to wear bikini bottoms, you know, like that's yeah. fine if a team wants to wear a bikini. If another, but like, why? I don't know. Like, that's what's the most fascinating thing of me, which like, I get like that point where if it's like, you know, with viewership and things like that, but that's just, just odd to me. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's, ridiculous that the viewership would drop if they let them wear actual pants Shorts. yeah yeah <laughs> just like something that you don't get a constant wedgie in like yeah i mean because you're probably diving around yeah they're diving and like spiking this ball and then like they're playing an olympic game of volleyball, volleyball. like this isn't like a casual backyard volleyball game this is like an olympic game of like, volleyball these people are athletes yeah like professional beach volleyball players which Dang. i think honestly is probably harder than real volleyball because like the floor is moving yeah you're in the sand <laughs> and it's hot and then they have like these tiny little like bottoms that they have to wear and they like ha- probably get sand all up in it and i just couldn't yeah. help but think of how uncomfortable i would be and how stupid that is that that's their regulation uniform like they have to wear that <laughs> yeah i i got nothing i wish i could provide any like this might be the reason it seems so ridiculous to me that yeah, I, just have, I know i don't even know what to say Anyway, so justice for the beach women's volleyball team or the women's beach volleyball team <laughs> for all of them justice worldwide. For women in beach uh, volleyball and just women in the Olympics and in general. Yeah, in general. That was anyway. So that's a little bit of feminist no, Olympic I news for you. <laughs> that rant. I should be watching more of the Olympics. I I only watched like I watched the I think the women's like finals for the gymnastics mm-hmm. and when the girl who, who oh, what's her name who won again Michaela Skinner from Utah is that what you're talking about or no 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 oh, okay sh- sh- hold on hold on let me google it oh it was um Sunisa Lee oh yeah when she won whatever she won I don't know what she won but she won a gold which is mm-hmm. amazing I was so emotional because it like showed her family all cheering mm-hmm. and I was just like I have like not even been watching this but it's like this woman's been working her whole life for this moment yeah and she just won gold like I'm getting emotional just thinking about it like the Olympics are amazing because it's like all these people have worked their entire lives dedicated to a sport in ways that I'm not even dedicated to my own music. Let's be honest. (laughs) And some of them are getting medals and it's just, oh, that like, that's probably the coolest feeling in the world. So yeah, Yeah. I was like, could not stop crying watching this woman talk to the interviewers and kind of go back to her family. And I was like, oh, this is a beautiful thing that I'm watching on television. I have, like, it's such a hard time when they're, like, so mad at themselves and they show, like, that oh. look of, like, defeat. And it's like, you did so good. Like, you're in the, like, top 1% of the world. Like, no one else could do what you're doing. <laughs> like, I know. <laughs> it's like, I would look I'm like amazing. a dying fish. You're doing so great. <laughs> like, you're amazing. Up there. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I feel that. I feel oh, that man. Better. Yeah. Anyway. But anyways. That's yes. some Olympic content for you all. <laughs> well, in an almost complete 180, because we are talking about an American composer in the late 1800s slash early 1900s today. Exciting. So we are talking about Amy Beach, which, hey, beach volleyball. Oh, there you go. The Fun connection. little random tie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I like this artist i realized it had been a while since i'd done a classical composer and in when i was you know in school i had sung a song 
by her, which is what made me familiar with her. In our, we did like a class of diction and each um, unit, we did French, German, um, American art song and Italian. Mm -hmm. And every single one that I could... I made an effort of choosing a woman composer. So, for so my proud of you. <laughs> the, thank you. So for American <laughs> Art Song, I chose a song by Amy Beach. And um, it was really cool now to kind of learn about kind of where she came from and just now more about her life. So she was an American composer and pianist. She was the first successful American female composer of like large scale art music. So mm. just as a brief summation of what she's done before we dive into you know the specifics of her life but her Gaelic symphony premiered first in the Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1896 and it was the first symphony composed and published by an American woman she was one of the very first American composers to succeed without the benefit of European training and she was one of the most respected and acclaimed American composers of her era and then as a pianist she was also acclaimed for the concerts that she would give that would feature her own music as well as other composers and she would do concerts and tours in the United States and in Germany. Wow. So a huge big deal composer for that time period, especially in America. And kind of like what I mentioned with it's like she didn't have the European training. That was kind of a big deal. And I'll kind of talk about it later, how when she would go to Europe, it was kind of like, oh, like this is an American composer, an American trained composer, and she's still good. You know what I mean? (laughs) I think the Europeans were a little bit uppity. (laughs) (laughs) about their view of Americans and their music. Uh, Anyways, so really interesting. Um, I do have a little bit of a state of arts, state of the arts. I feel like I've kind of been skipping this the last couple artists I've done, but just to kind of show the attitude towards women composers within that time frame. And there's an article that I read from the New York Times about Amy Beach um, that was put out about four years ago. Um, It's called Amy Beach, a pioneering American composer turns 150. It gave a cool breakdown of her life and it started out by explaining kind of where she came from as far as how the world viewed women composers. So I'm just going to read this little section of it just because he words it really well and he's also providing quotes. For context, there is a composer named Antonin Dvorak, I believe, who's a Czech composer. Um, So let me just read this. It says, shortly after Antonin Dvorak arrived in the United States in 1892 for a historic visit that resulted in the creation of his New World Symphony, he made a cursory remark to a Boston newspaper about gender and the field of music. Here all the ladies play, Dvorak said. It is well, it is nice, but I am afraid the ladies cannot help us much. They have not the creative power. His contention that women might play but not create, that they could be performers but not composers, was commonplace at the time. Ten days later, though, another paper published a rebuttal from an up-and-coming Boston composer who would soon go on to prove Dvorak wrong. And then, from the year 1675 to the year 1885, women have composed 153 works, Amy Beach wrote, including 55 serious operas, six cantatas, 53 comic operas, seven operettas, six singspiel, four ballets, four vaudevilles, two oratorios, one of each fairs, pastorals, masks, ballads, and buffas. Listing, and then she went on to list the names of a dozen of female composers. She also added that more women are interested in the serious study of the science of music as well as the art than formally. So, mm. like I said, I like that that kind of shows a attitude about women in the arts at the time that a very prominent composer was like, wow, it's so nice that women can play, but... You know, they don't really have it in there, them to be composers. And then what I also love is that from just the very beginning, Amy Beach was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have been composing this whole time kind of a thing. It's such a weird like power imbalance where it's like, yeah. I feel like men are always willing to be like, oh, well, women can do the lowest form of this art. You yeah. know what I mean? Or maybe not even like men specifically, but the world in general. I feel like they're just like, oh, well, women can be teachers, but they can't be the principal. Or women mm-hmm. can be the dancers, but they can't be the choreographer. And it's just yeah. like this weird, like, oh, you can have a little bit of power, but we're not going to give not you too much. Know. Yeah. And what I also just find so interesting, too, is that it just totally overlooks the idea of, like, but maybe they haven't given been given the opportunities, you know? Like, if there's less mm-hmm. women in these music schools being taught by world-class composers compared to all the men that are, yeah, sure, there are going to be less amazing works 
put out by women, but that's because they don't have that same benefit that you did in, yeah. you know, in Europe in the 1800s to, to grow and to learn. And it just completely sidesteps all of that and just puts it on women not being capable. That's so weird. Another example of this is there was a book in 1880 by a music critic named George Upton. And um, I think that he was an American. His book is Women in Music. <laughs> and here's the subtitle for it. A general view of women's influence on music, love attachments and home life, the failure of women in composition, some consideration of reasons why she has produced no enduring musical work. So basically, he and others, of course, believe that women were just too emotionally volatile for the exact science of composition. They can only serve as mothers and muses for great men. And <laughs> and here's a quote from it. She will always be the recipient and interpreter, Upton wrote, but there's little hope that she will be the creator. Hmm. Love that. But I, I liked finding those things because there was like, evidence you know in a way that there were these attitudes at the time that women had to face especially within their their realms of you know their communities and their male peers as far as you know the other composers that they were surrounding themselves with and the music critic that was a yeah. music critic in 1880 who said that amy beach was born in 1867 so that's about you know the time that she would have started performing and composing so it's just funny. You can actually find that whole essay he wrote online. I didn't read through all of it, but I think I'm going to later just for a good chuckle. So yeah, shout out to all my women composers out there. I told the story in like one of our very first podcast episodes of me overhearing a group of guys from from the school I went to kind of talking about an all women's all women's concert that they were doing and making remarks that we needed to wait a little bit longer to do concerts like that because there just wasn't enough good or complicated music by women composers and kind of making snide remarks that it was really simple, easy, easy music for them to play. And of course there was a lot of the like, Oh, but I'm not saying that we shouldn't have things like this, or I'm not saying it's not a good thing. It's like, no, you're being sexist. So yeah. <laughs> you don't need to put those disclaimers, but yeah. So just, I feel like there's so many weird attitudes towards women who are composers. Kind of like you said, like they're allowed to be the performers. They're allowed to do all those things. But as far as like coming up with their own ideas and like leaving their own legacy in those ways, it's people for some reason still aren't open to it. I mean, obviously it's grown been a lot better more recently, but yeah, as recently as like a hundred years ago, 120 years ago, this is what the attitude was on that note. Let's talk about Amy Beach. So she was born Amy Marcy Cheney in se on September 5th in 1867 in New Hampshire. Her parents are Charles Abbott Cheney and Clara Imogene Cheney. Her mother was an excellent pianist and singer. She didn't, I don't think, pursue it professionally, but she definitely did it well. But Amy from very, very young showed signs of being a child prodigy. Um, apparently, she was able to sing 40 songs accurately by age one. She was capable of improvising counter melody by age two, and she taught herself to read at age three. So this is a very smart child. At the age of four, she composed three waltzes for piano during one summer at her grandfather's farm. Um, and apparently there wasn't a piano. So what she did is she composed the pieces in her head mentally. And then when she got home, she played them on her piano. So which is incredible because that meant that she could just hold on to what all the notes should be in her brain. And then once she had the piano, she could just do it. And I, I, I could not even now, yeah. like I, I have a four year music degree under oh, my belt man. and I could not do that. I can't even fathom that idea of being able to compose in your head. I know. And, then and remember, remember oh like, that's gosh. the thing. Sometimes, like, I will think of melody ideas. I'll pull out my voice recorder, record them. If I don't, I forget them. Like, there's yeah. no way I could perform a whole piano piece. Or not perform, compose a whole piano piece and remember it a month later and just be able to play it exactly how it was in my head. That's so cool. Wow. I know. So musical genius from a very, very young age. Um, she could play music by ear, including like all the different like four part hymns and things like that. So she was very, very accomplished. Apparently, the family like obviously struggled to keep up with these musical instruments. Her mother sang and like would play for her. But apparently she like 
try to stop her from getting piano music herself. I don't really know what this means, but I guess she believed that like indulging the child's wishes in this respect would damage her authority as a parent. So I don't know exactly what that means. Don't let your kids have anything they like. I'm interested in what that means because I don't get it, but they tried to hold off for a while. Um, Another funny thing is I guess Amy would command what music was being played in the home and like would be upset if she didn't feel like the music was good enough. So (laughs) just from a very young age, she had very high standards when it came to her music. That's awesome. Um, But at age six, they started doing, she started doing piano lessons just from her mother and would soon start giving just public recitals of works from Handel, Beethoven, and Chopin, as well as her own pieces, which is interesting. In 1875, they moved to, their family moved to Chelsea, which is just a suburb near Boston. They were advised there to enroll Amy in a European conservatory, but instead they decided to go for a local training and the, t- the teacher's name was Ernst Parabo, I believe, and later Carl ba- Behrman. Mm. I think that's how I say it. He was actually a student of Franz Liszt, which I think we've mentioned a couple of times on this. He was a great pianist um, and a contemporary of Clara Schumann, which we've, of course, talked about in the past. From 1881 to 1882, she was 14 at this time. She studied harmony and counterpoint with another teacher. And that, like, year one to two years studying harmony was really her only formal instruction as a composer so but apparently what she did is she was very self-taught she would collect every book she could find on theory composition composition orchestration and she taught herself counterpoint harmony fugues everything like that and she would even go on to translate other books she would translate from french like other famous composers in things like that, like their treaties and papers on orchestration um, considered, I guess, what was like most composers' Bibles into English. So wow, she would seek out everything so far that she would translate it from other languages just so she could learn from them, which I don't shows, have like, her level passion. of dedication. Right? I, I like, like see a book's in French and I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'll never read it. <laughs> I know. Well, even like the amount of like there's been a couple people we've covered on the uh, on the podcast where they have their works like their biographies in French and I'm like oh what a shame mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm not gonna read that <laughs> I'm nope. not gonna try and translate that I'm not gonna learn French so I can do that nope I always think of it as like there is a linguistics expert out there that really needs a project that would be a great one, one day they'll do them. that for me <laughs> yeah. oh um, man so yeah the amount of dedication that's amazing I know um, another in a quote from her directly is she said, I copied and memorized whole scores of symphonies. She once said in an interview, it was like a medical student's dissection, which is cool. Hmm. So she just completely immersed herself in studying it as best as she could. And I think it's so cool that she was self-taught. So yeah, early career, she made her concert debut at age 16 on October 18th, 1883 in a promenade concert at Boston's Music Hall. It received a lot of praise. There was a biographer named Fried Block who would say, it is hard to imagine a more positive critical reaction to a debut. And her audience was enthusiastic in the extreme. Wow. Um, I know, right? This is an interesting story. So in 1885, she she was playing with a conductor for a Mendelssohn concerto. And apparently, in his mind, he thought he would go easy on the teenage soloist and play it a little bit slower. But when she began to play the piano part, she played it at the full tempo. And a quote from her is, I did not know that he was sparing me, but I did know that the tempo dragged and I swung the orchestra into time. <laughs> so, which I love. So there's like other, you know, older, more established musicians that are like, oh, we should go easy on this child who's playing mm-hmm. with us. And she was like, nope, I'm fine. And yeah didn't even realize what was going on and she's just like oh the tempo's dragging this is annoying she's like why are you lagging come on hurry up like come on orchestra (laughs) let's go oh my gosh that's awesome so she ended up being married at the age of 18 in 1885 which is that exact same year that you know she played that last story um his name was dr henry harris aubrey beach and he was a boston surgeon who was 24 years her senior 
she was she was 18 at the time her name was changed pretty much for all concert programs and all published compositions as mrs hha beach which is lovely um you know just how that happens even nowadays yeah. Always get the ma- the like cards in the mail for Mr. and Mrs. Jordan Ramos. Doesn't happen so often, but it happens enough that I'm like, hmm. Especially considering I haven't even legally changed my name, it's fine. Yeah, like I'm fine with the last name changing, but at least let them have their first name still. Know. You know what I mean? Totally. I mean, I I will change my last name eventually. It started out oh, as laziness. You don't want to. <laughs> yeah, and now it's kind of turned into a stance where I'm like, no, my name is Anderson, and I will introduce myself as Sadie Anderson everywhere I go. But one day I'll be Sadie Ramos. Besides yeah, I I totally get it when people want to change their last names, and that's fine. I totally get it when people don't, and that's also fine. Yeah. But if you're going to change your last name, I think most people still want to keep their first name. Their first name? You would think. <laughs> yeah. And like to have their accomplishments be their, you know, yeah. at least their first name and their new last name. Can not you imagine? Mrs. It, my husband. If your college degree, because you got married before you graduated, right? I did. Yeah. So before. if your college degree was Mrs. Jordan Ramos. Or if like now, every time I release music, like on Spotify, you would just look up Mrs. Jordan Ramos. <laughs> Maybe I should do that. That's like a stance. <laughs> it's like your new artist name. <laughs> like Mrs. Mrs. Jordan, Jordan Ramos. It's fine. Oh, man. I mean, it's That's an option. Funny. Yeah, it's just a very interesting thing. Like, I wonder why that became, yeah. I don't know. Like, you don't have What's... to completely erase the female. <laughs> I know. Like, come on. Like, can it be Mrs. Amy Beach, not Mrs. HHA Beach? Like, yeah. That's interesting. Weird thing, though, is so her marriage was, was, I quote, conditioned upon her willingness to live according to his status, which was to function as a society matron and patron of the arts. Um, she agreed never to teach piano, an activity that was usually, you know, associated with women as far as like how they could make money as a musician. Um, and she also agreed to limit performances to two public recitals per year. And then her profits were donated to charity. And to devote herself more to composition than to performance, though she kind of always considered herself a pianist first rather than a composer, which is interesting. And her self-guided education in composition was also really pushed by her husband. Apparently, he disapproved of his wife studying with a tutor. But I also it says here that like restrictions like these were pretty typical for middle and upper class women at the time. I don't I don't know. There's a quote from Fanny yeah. Mendelssohn, who was pretty much her European counterpart. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. they existed around the same same time. Um, and she says music will perhaps become his referring to her brother profession. While for you, it can and must be only an ornament. So I'm huh. I'm intrigued by it because also from her own words in 1942, kind of reflecting on her married life, she said, I was happy and he was content. I belonged to a happy period that may never come again. And there was another thing that he wrote that it was more he, it was he more than anyone else who encouraged my interest upon the field of musical composition in the larger forms. And it was a pioneer work, at least for this country, for a woman to do. Hmm. So I'm really intrigued by it because he's obviously p- there's a lot of weird stipulations in this marriage. So I don't know if maybe he was just uncomfortable with her being a p- portion of the breadwinner. So yeah. he was like, I don't want you making profits from your concerts, even though she could. Or I don't want you teaching because you're making money. But I also am encouraging you to pursue Com- composition, pose. which like was not the common path for a woman who was a musician yeah. at the time. So there's nuance to it it's complicated i you know i i'm very intrigued by that though and how that works you know know. it's so hard to tell because it's like like you said there's so much nuance but there's so much that comes from like time Mm -hmm. period as well and so it's like was that just like totally normal at that time because looking at it i'm like toxic (laughs) yeah telling her what she can and can't do horrible man like but it's like if from her own words, she was happy in the marriage. And then there's also that side where he was really encouraging her to compose. It's like, yeah. And then okay, it's like, I, oh, that's good. Yeah. Like, that's a good thing. But then there's also he wasn't comfortable with her having a tutor and wanted her to be self-taught. Like, I'm just kind of curious as to yeah. 
the motivations that were driving it for him. I mean, obviously, they're both product of their environments. So, you know, it's like it's like it's so easy for me to be like, what a toxic sex, abusive husband. But like, but in reality, he could have been like the most loving, kind guy who just wanted everything to stay proper, and that was yeah. Who just also maybe was yeah part of I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. It's so hard. Maybe one day we'll get to interview everyone. Yeah, (laughs) no, but already me. Like, tell me what you really thought about your husband. Do we hate him? I kind of want to hate him, but like, I'm open to it. Yeah. But it's like, but he was encouraging your composing, and that's a big deal. Yeah. But it's like, but why weren't you allowed to teach anyway? (laughs) And like, play more. And why could you not make money doing it? Did he have like a position in society? Did you already say that? He was a surgeon. Okay. So he was, I'm assuming, pretty wealthy himself. And I think he yeah. probably came from, like, a higher class. I don't know. I don't know either. I wonder if, like, doctors had a lot of responsibilities to, like, uphold a certain morality level, like pastors and stuff did. You know what I mean? Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Not that I need to find excuses excuses for well, this, this Yeah, because it's, like, man. part of me is, like, I don't mean to, like, be making excuses for, like, these weird stipulations on rules that he would put on his life. Also he is 24 years older than her and married her as soon as she was 18 years old, which is like another fun layer. Um, but she said she was happy and apparently he did great things to, you know, encourage her to compose, which was unusual for a woman to pursue at the time. So I don't know. Wow. That if I were to marry someone 24, 24 years older than me right now, they would have been on the world for an entire lifetime of mine longer than me. All of these, like, early composers and their very old husbands and weird rules. I don't know what to think of it. I don't know either. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. So I actually found this account when I was looking at some stuff for our Riot Girl episode. And it is called Girl Music, but it's G-R-R-R-L Music. Oh, yeah. And it's two girls, Kelsey and Ashley, and they are all about promoting um, indie music. So they do like a new music Friday, um, up and coming artists you need to hear. Like they're just constantly posting people that you should listen to. Best New Folk, top 20 albums of 2021. Anyway, so just kind of a fun account to follow if you're looking for some more obscure artists that maybe won't show up immediately on your Spotify page. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love this. I'm going to follow them on my personal, too, because this is awesome. Yeah, and you should submit your stuff. They have, like, a place to submit. I know. That's when I was like, hmm, perhaps. Yeah. So you can submit your things, and then um, you could also possibly be featured on their New Music Friday. Yeah. Plus, the aesthetic's just really fun. They've got some bright colors and everything going on. Yeah, I know. I love just looking at their account. It's so cool. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Check them out. Really happy for people who continue to do wonderful things. Um, So, my person is that I'm going to be shouting out today is actually a listener who DM'd us that I'm excited we get to shout out. So, her name is Olivia Francis, and you can find her on Instagram, just Francis spelled F-R-A-N-C-E-S. She is a singer, songwriter, kind of pop country vibes, I believe. Um, She released a song on July 23rd, which is obviously very exciting called daffodil dreams oh um, i listened to that oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, did. I listened to it too it's really nice um i love it and she has a lot of other stuff too like she has albums from 2019 2015 and 2013 so she's been consistently putting out music which is amazing so you can go to her spotify she has tons of music available she looks like yeah she's doing really well so check her out Again, that's Olivia.Francis. And yeah, she's doing great things. And I'm imagining that since she just released a new song, I bet there's like more music coming soon. Probably. Yeah. Give her a follow so you can follow along with what she's doing. Definitely. That's so awesome. Way to go, everyone out there doing your stuff. It's amazing. And go stream Hopelessly Devoted to You by Daisy. (laughs) Yeah, do that. (laughs) And go listen to my song. It's cool. Yeah, it is cool. All right, now back to the show. But though continuing on, she still did have success 
within this marriage with her compositions. Um, a really major compositional success came with her Mass in E-flat major. This was performed in 1892 by the Handel and Haydn Society Orchestra, which since its foundation in 1815 had never composed a piece by a woman so this was its premier performance by a woman composer which is yeah. crazy a newspaper music critic responded to this by declaring beach one of america's foremost composers which is amazing it compared mm. her piece to bach which you know bach wow. is a big deal yeah that is a big deal she followed this up with another really big milestone in her um in her own music history, which is her Gaelic symphony, which I referenced at the very beginning. That was pretty much her crowning achievement, I believe. And that was the first symphony composed and published by an American woman that premiered in October 30th, 1896. And that was performed at the Boston symphony with exceptional success. So man, yeah. A little side note though, is some with the response to it. Here's just a quote that says, whatever the merits or defects of the symphony were, thought to be critics went to extraordinary lengths in their attempts to relate them to the composer's sex so like while Um, she was very successful it sounds like they often brought it up as much as they could that she was a woman and whether that was in her favor or against her so there's a composer named george whitefield chadwick who wrote to beach that he and his colleague had attended the symphony premiere and much enjoyed it he said i always feel a thrill of pride myself whenever i hear work by any of us and as such you will have to be counted in whether you like it or not one of the boys and these boys were a group of composers that were unofficially known as the second new england school that included him and a lot of other musicians here in america that's and like uh, nice but like i know it's like <laughs> oh you're you're good enough to be a boy which is like you know but with with the addition of beach though they collectively became known as the boston six of whom beach was the youngest so it's like they welcomed her in they recognized her success but you know the like oh you're one of the boys has its own connotations that yeah isn't fully <laughs> there yet but they just missed it <laughs> just missed it you were trying to do a good thing you got so close (laughs) so close but hey she became known with them so good for them no that's great they included a female that's more than a lot of people do. which i guess just shows how amazing her music was that they were like okay cool you're one of us now we want you in our group which you know they had to be very good in order to defy those stereotypes so in 1910, her husband died. Um, so she was widowed not too long after she married, um, I guess 20, 25 years later. Mm-hmm. And her mother passed away seven months later. She, at this time, just went to Europe, kind of in hopes of mourning and recovering there. She changed her name to Amy Beach while she was there rather than Mrs. H.H. good for her i know um and she just traveled for a whole year with marcella Kraft, who was an american soprano who was apparently a prima donna of the berlin royal opera Hmm. and apparently her first year in europe was of almost entire rest so she just went away went to europe for a while just to try and recover from all the loss in her life which good for her and changed her name back to amy beach 1912 she resumed though giving concerts while she was in europe her european debut was in dresden in october of 1912 and she played her violin and piano sonata with a popular violinist there at the time and had very good reviews while she was there Mm. um and she just kept performing concerts while she was out there apparently demand arose for her sheet music for her songs and her piano solo pieces beyond the supply that her publisher hat could even give available to german music stores so people were very very impressed with this basically her music was selling out like people wanted to play what she was composing which is really cool in november through december of 1913 she played the solo part in her piano concerto with orchestras in leipzig hamburg and berlin her gaelic symphony was also performed in those places and a critic in hamburg said we have before us undeniably a possessor of musical gifts of the highest kind a musical nature touched with genius and then she was of course like i mentioned before greeted as the first american woman able to compose music of a european quality of excellence so even over in europe they were like wow this woman 
knows what she is doing as far as composition goes. That's awesome. While she was alive, she published over 300 works, and most of them were art songs or vocal chamber music, though it spanned all classical genres. A notable aspect of her musicianship was her role, of course, as a virtuoso pianist. And so she would regularly perform her own compositions as well as others. And she would just continue to tour extensively in Germany, New England, even go all the way to the Pacific Coast, where she brought the European American concert music to the Western states. So just very, very prominent, both in Europe and in America. In 1914, she officially, though, returned to America because it was the beginning of World War I. Some cool things that she did here in 1915, the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco commemorated the opening of the Panama Canal and the city's recovery from the 1906 earthquake and fire. Amy Beach was honored often by her concerts and receptions during 1915, and her Panama hymn was commissioned for this occasion. So... You know, she, I think I like putting I wanted to put that in just to show that like for big events happening throughout the U.S., people were commissioning her work. So it just shows like they're so like, you know, like she was in high demand, I guess. And people yeah. were paying her large sums of money for her work. Her later years, she spent most of her time in New York. There was a like a cousin and an aunt that she lived with for a period of time in New Hampshire. Um, but then eventually they passed away and she went to mm-hmm. New York. <laughs> this is funny. Someone, I think when she was back in America, she would kind of go by Mrs. HHA Beach sometimes. Um, but then someone asked her if she was the daughter of Mrs. HHA Beach. Um, <laughs> oh, no, this is what happened. So while she was back, so she went by Amy Beach for a while. But then someone asked her, oh, are you the daughter of Mrs. HHA Beach? Because that's what she had been more popularly known as. So because of that, she ended up resuming the use of her married name. Um, so she would still use Amy Beach here and the, here and there, but as far as like performances go, she kind of went back to claiming that, which I wonder if, yeah, people were just confused if they were referring to two different people. And she was like, no, 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 that's me. I miss yeah. Amy Beach. But from her compositions, she kept receiving income from her publisher. Um, and then from 1914 to 1921, she had new compositions published by a whole new publisher. And basically like, there's a Centerville cottage that had been built on a five acre property that she was able to purchase just with the royalties from one song, which was one of her most popular songs. So that just shows how successful he was that from the people purchasing the sheet music for one song, she was able to buy five acres of land and build a home there, which just shows like she obviously sold a lot of copies of yeah. that music. People okay, Sadie, it. step it yes. up. I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. We're at 571 streams on Spotify. We're working on it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh. You're doing great. <laughs> Thank you. For the rest of her life, um, she, like, she would spend time just in Europe. She spent the winter and spring of 1928 and 1929 in Rome, where she would attend concerts almost daily. Um, but then she ended up going back to the United States she because of heart disease she retired in 1940 and passed away in new york city in 1944 and she's now married not married she's buried with her husband in boston massachusetts Mm -hmm. so there's the summation of her life now here is just to talk a little bit about her legacy and what else she was able to do so i love this quote from her and she of course went worried about women's limited opportunities that of course, like I mentioned before, like the lack of opportunities, how do you get better? And something that she said is, music is a superlative expression of life experience, she said, and women by the very nature of her position is denied many of the experiences that color the life of man. Mm. Which, because when I was thinking of it, I was thinking like, oh, they don't get the same opportunities of training, of schooling, of things like that. And I thought that it was such an interesting point that she brought up the fact that it's like, no, they really weren't given the same rights to life opportunity as men were. And so therefore, like they don't have as much maybe to be inspired about or to, you know, draw from, which I thought was an interesting take. But she used her status as like, you know, the top woman American poser to further the careers of other young musicians. She, of course, agreed not to give private music lessons while she was married, 
but after her husband passed away, she was able to work as a music educator during the early 20th century. She served as president of the board of counselors of the New England Conservatory of Music. She also worked to coach and give feedback to various young composers, musicians, students, acted as a mentor for these students and just really encouraged them to spend their time perfecting their craft. Um, there is a document that she has that music's 10 commandments is given for young composers where basically wow. she, I know so she suggested that young women spare no time analyzing works from every genre, their technical progress and to employ variety whenever, whenever possible. So hmm. those are some of her stances on um, composition. From 1904 to 1943, she's published several articles just focusing on programming, preparation, and just different techniques for serious piano players basing off of her own practice routine and just her own life. So beyond just being an amazing, accomplished composer, I thought it was really cool that she went out of her way to like inspire young people and to encourage them as well. With, of course, her status, she was in very high demand as a speaker and performer for various educational institutions, such as the University of New Hampshire. And from there, she received an honorary master's degree in 1928. She also worked to create the Beaches Beach Clubs, which helped teach and educate children in music. She served as a leader of some organizations focused on music education and women, including the Society of American Women Composers as its very first president. Um, oh, and then cool. just some, I know, some recognition that she got since she's passed away. In 1994, the Boston Women's Heritage Trail placed a b bronze plaque at her Boston address. In 1995, her grave site was dedicated. In 1999, she was put in the American Classic Music Hall of Fame and Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. In 2000, the Boston Pops paid tribute by adding her name as the first woman joining 87 other composers on the granite wall of Boston's hatch shell. And then, of course, you know, in honor of her 150th birthday, the mayor of Boston declared September 5th, 2017 to be Amy Beach Day. And then, of course, there was that really cool New York Times article that I just mentioned. So I think cool. it's cool that there are efforts, especially more recently, you know, in these last 20, 30 years to yeah. bring attention to her. But, you know, it's the New York Times article that I referenced. You should read it. We should link it in the show notes because it's really good. Um, it just points out the fact, and this is a trend that we find over and over again the more we do these podcast episodes, that there are so many women who were so, so famous in their time, right? Yeah. Like this woman was making a living off of her compositions, was known as the most well-versed woman musician in america i mean she was quote unquote one of the boys right like she was very welcomed while she was alive and it's just very interesting how quickly she has been pushed aside to obscurity i mean granted i i guess there's not a lot of american composers who are men that are well known but like there's aaron copeland like everyone knows who he is and kind of sounds like she was on his level in a well yeah way. no we talked about that in our book episode kind of like this idea of these women not really even being hidden mm -hmm. but that people just keep forgetting about them until it's convenient and so they keep having to be re rediscovered every couple of years when in reality yeah, exactly. like we just need to stick them in the history books like they're there they they're exist. already there yeah and it's not like <laughs> she's not good enough like it's mm -mm. not like we are giving doing her a favor by including her like yeah. she was on the same playing field she yes. was getting international recognition like a complete contemporary of the other composers of her time regardless mm -hmm. of gender and then exactly. like for some reason for some odd reason i, I wonder why <laughs> perhaps it might have something to do with this she's a woman but i don't know uh, maybe you never know but yeah, I feel like it's just, it was so cool learning about her life and just how accomplished she was. Because, you know, like in the American art songbook I had, she had like one song that I mm -hmm. sang. And she had over, it's not like, it's lack of quantity. There were 300 works published and most of it was vocal music. I feel like you could just pick one. I know. Like where are all the Amy Beach concerts happening? <sighs> They're not happening often enough. That actually makes me angry because like, I saw a pin on Pinterest the other day that was like, um, don't get discouraged. Picasso had over 300 works of art and we only talk about like 30 of them. And I could do a whole podcast on why Picasso is toxic. 
but <laughs> um, that's kind of like a good point in comparison there that it's like, okay, like an abundance of work should therefore mean more highly acclaimed place pieces and more mm-hmm. of a place in history. Yeah. And so it's like she had a huge abundance of work and yet you only had one song in there. Yeah, exactly. So it's like it's gender discrimination. Yeah, and like granted, like, you know, it sounds like her more crowning achievement was like this symphony, and obviously that wasn't going to be in my vocal music book, but <laughs> it's still interesting that, I don't know, I'm just like, okay, yeah. where, where is this woman's recognition? Because she obviously was a huge pioneer, and also just like such a, like what she would do for music education later in her life, and like mm-hmm. ad- what she would advocate for. There's an essay that we may or may not be talking about next week, um, where she just says to the girl who wants to compose and it's this whole honestly like almost like manifesto of like the way that she views music the way she views popular music and just the advice that she would give to any other women who want to start composing and it's it's very earnest like the way she views music and you can tell that she has such a reverence for it that I really admire yeah. and so it's just unfortunate that maybe she's a little bit more obscure than what she would deserve to be as far as like what she actually did and how accomplished she was. Yeah, agreed. But yeah. Wow. There's Amy Beach. And if you are interested, which I hope you are, you definitely should go and listen to her her music. I, yeah, it's just it's very beautiful. Go yeah. listen to that Gaelic symphony. Just, you know, good old background music whenever you're, I don't know, doing yoga. Or writing in your journal. Whatever you want to do. Cleaning your house. (laughs) It's great. No, that's awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed learning more about Amy. Like I said, we're kind of going to keep talking about her next week. But it's more on the topic rather than the woman. But it'll be really cool. So tune in next week. Yes. Listen to all the other episodes. If you've been a fan of the podcast, leave us a review, perhaps. Please. Please, please. I don't want to beg. I don't want to be that person. But we could really use some reviews. We get so many wonderful DMs and messages from all of you, so we know you're enjoying it. But we would Mm -hmm. just love it if you could go leave some reviews. Other people can know that Mm -hmm. you enjoy it. Just helps us grow. Yeah, Yeah. we just want to keep growing so we can keep doing this. Yes. So, but thank you, everyone who does listen. We love you so much. And keep coming back. We love having you here. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah just makes it all worth it this is a wonderful like passion project definitely for me and Sadie and um, we love to hear how much it impacts all of you and what you're learning and thinking about and it makes it all worth it so it really does thank you well we'll see you back here next week Uh uh-huh and from now on every other every Monday yeah don't worry about it we don't go on vacation that often (laughs) we just needed one week off (laughs) we just needed one week (laughs) okay well have a great week everyone bye 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 Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.